excited to be with you all today as we continue in our series, Summer Cookout. My name is Molly Kate Hance, and I've been interning here at First Christian Church this summer. First Christian is my home church. I grew up here. Some of my earliest memories are just down the hall in children's ministry or just down the hill in youth ministry. So before I say anything else this morning, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that many of you poured into me while I was here. I just finished my freshman year of college and I'm headed back in the fall, but at the end of my spring semester, I was so excited to get back here and to get back into the life of this church. I've heard it said that it's easy to fall away from church during your college years, and I can see how that would be true. But thanks to all the people here this morning who walked with me and talked with me and poured into me, I have only found myself this year loving this church and, more importantly, the church more and more. So thank you. Well, I'm home for the summer after being in Nashville all year, and let me tell you, when you come home for the summer, there are a few things you have to relearn. Since I've been home for the summer, I've relearned this first thing, and it's very on theme. I've relearned how good a home-cooked meal can taste. <laughs> I've relearned how good it feels to sit on an actual couch. And I have relearned how quiet normal houses are after one in the morning. I have relearned a lot, but perhaps the most important thing I've relearned this summer is how perfect my little sister is. No, seriously. She's the kind of person who doesn't miss a run, who always leaves the house perfectly styled, who never has an unkind word in her mouth. And I am so, so proud of her. But I am also so, so jealous. No, don't get me wrong. Most of the time, I'm an awesome big sister. Most of the time, I'm proud, and I just brag on her until I drive people crazy, but every once in a while, I get a little bit more jealous than I'd like to admit. For example, this May, on the Friday night before Mother's Day, my dad gathered me and my brother and my sister and I up and told us it was going to be our job to clean the house for our mom. Saturday morning, he took her out to run some errands. He got her out of the house all day, and my siblings and I leapt to work making sure the house was spotless. Our spirits were high, but very quickly on that May Saturday morning, it became apparent that my little sister was absolutely lapping me. I mean, every time I paused for a break or to get a glass of water or to check my phone for a second, she had started a new task. She was working so hard all morning and I could not keep up. That is, until about 3 p.m. rolled around. And as I moved to the back of the house to move a load of laundry from the washer to the dryer, I noticed the conspicuous absence of Margaret. You see, my perfect little sister had stopped helping me around the house to read a book she had to have finished by Monday for her English class so that she wouldn't be doing homework when mom got home and we could celebrate together. My friends, you have never seen a stack of towels so sanctimoniously folded as the stack of towels I folded that day. Even though I knew my sister had been working hard all morning, and even though I knew this load of laundry was a gift to my wonderful mother, I was creasing linens with a vengeance. By the time my mother got home that evening, I was in no mood to celebrate. I don't know if you've ever done that. 
If you've ever taken on a task with all excitement, but by the end of it just felt overwrought and frustrated with everyone in the room. But this problem is an old one. In fact, in Luke 10, Jesus encounters two sisters just like my sister and me, getting the house ready to celebrate someone. Take a look at this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. When we read this story, a few things become clear. First, we see that there's a problem in this story, and we also see there's a problem with this story. There's a problem with this story because nobody seems to be able to agree on what the main point we can take away from this story is. In preaching planning with Ethan over the past few weeks, I have learned that every single book you read about this story will tell you there is a different main point we can take away. Some authors suggest that this story is a comparison between faith and works. Mary has faith while Martha is trying to earn her salvation with works. Some authors see this as a comparison between a good woman and a bad woman. Mary is a good woman, a faithful disciple, and Martha is a little too distracted with domestic things. Some authors even see this story as a comparison between married women and unmarried women. Since Martha's in charge of the house, she's the married woman who cares for the things of the world, while Mary is an unmarried woman who cares for the things of this Lord. They see the story as a criticism of marriage. Basically, wherever people read this story, they disagree about it. So we have a problem with this story. And then there's the other problem. The problem in this story, and if you have sisters or any siblings at all, you already know this problem. Here we have two sisters getting ready to welcome the Lord into their home. And they're arguing. I mean, Martha is snapping at Mary and trying to get Jesus mad at Mary, and Jesus is snapping at Martha, and there's just a problem in this story. But there are a few things we know about this problem. The first thing we know about this problem is that the problem is not the fact that Martha is getting the house ready. This story comes in the middle of the travel narrative, or the story of Jesus' ministry as he moves from town to town. And the chapters in this narrative emphasize the importance of hospitality. In fact, this story comes only a few verses after a story we read a few weeks ago when we talked about the importance of hospitality. The story when Jesus sends out his disciples with these words. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Jesus tells his disciples to look for the people practicing hospitality because these people are going to be the fundamental engines of the spread of the gospel message. And that's exactly what Martha is doing. 
Martha has been blessed and honored to get to welcome the Lord into her home, and she is proving equal to the task by practicing hospitality. Martha is expressing love and obedience to her Lord through her hospitality. So we know Martha's hospitality is not the problem. But we also know that Mary's study is not the problem. It's easy to take this for granted since Jesus explicitly says what Mary is doing is good. But I want to take a moment this morning to acknowledge that Jesus' affirmation of Mary is radical. In fact, in N.T. Wright's commentary on this story, he even says that the most important thing we can take away from the story of Mary and Martha is that Jesus makes room for women to hear, learn, and prepare to teach his message. Wright goes on to explain that in Mary's day, when you sat at the feet of a teacher, that meant you were being a student of that teacher. And if you were going to be a student of that teacher, that meant you would someday be a teacher yourself. But in Mary's day, this spot at the teacher's feet was usually reserved for men, but not with Jesus. Here, Jesus insists that it is good for a young woman like Mary to listen and prepare to teach. So we know Mary's study is not the problem. But still, we see a problem in this story. Still, Martha turns to Jesus and demands, Lord, can't you see that my sister has left me to do all the work? Tell her to help me. And still, Jesus is correcting her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. You know, for me, this story is one of those that the more I read it, the less comfortable I become with it. It's one of those that every time I read it, some of the words grate on me. See, I can hear Martha. Lord, don't you care? Doesn't anyone care that my sister left me to do all the work? Doesn't anyone care that I'm in here slaving away while my own sister slacks off? I can hear her getting more and more frustrated the longer she talks. And I can hear Jesus almost Baffled, gentle, admonishing, Martha, Martha, you're distracted. You're worried and upset. Even though your sister is doing a good thing, you want me to send her in there with you? I am the Lord Jesus in your living room. And you're fighting with your sister? The reason I can't get comfortable reading and talking about this story is that every time I read it, I see a little bit too much of myself in it. I know this problem all too well because all too often, it's mine. I think back to myself in the laundry room, how frustrated I was at working alone, how angry I was at my sister for working differently in a different room. The problem in this story is not Martha cooking Jesus' meal. And the problem is not Mary studying Jesus' words. The problem comes when Martha gets so frustrated and upset at having to work alone that she forgets she has Jesus in her living room. The problem comes when Martha diminishes Mary's task to serve her own. 
The problem is that Martha shames Mary. Look, Jesus does not come into the house and tell Mary to get up and go get in the kitchen. But he also doesn't tell Martha to get out of the kitchen and come sit and listen. Jesus does not intervene to stop either woman from working until Martha tries to get Jesus to condemn Mary. Martha comes into the living room, her hands on her hips, tapping her foot, saying, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work? Tell her to help me. When Jesus is in the living room, Martha knows. You get in the kitchen. If you really love the Lord and now he's in your house, you start cooking. And it is to this attitude that Jesus responds. Jesus rebukes Martha for shaming the way that Mary serves him. Jesus stops Martha from claiming that there's only one right way to respond to Jesus in the living room. I know, it sounds silly when Martha says it. Of course, if you think about it, if Jesus is in your living room, you need somebody to cook his meal, and you also need someone to make sure we don't miss a word he says. It sounds silly when Martha claims that there's only one right way to respond to Jesus in the living room. But we can do this, church. In fact, it's completely and totally easy to do this. Think about it. We can get up on a Sunday morning to serve in the nursery, only to find ourselves grumbling about all the people still in bed. We can start cooking dinner for high schoolers only to find ourselves pursing our lips at every cold oven in the city. We can stay late to clean up after an event and find our minds stuck entirely on all the people already home with their families. And this temptation to shame each other should come as no surprise to us. We see this all over the place in our culture. We shame each other for not going to college or for spending too much time in college for not having kids or for having too many kids, for not getting married or for getting married at the wrong time. We shame each other's jobs and skills and passions. On social media, we feel the burden of shame and we become voices of shame as we view each other's celebratory posts with bitterness. Friends, there are so many voices of shame and so many temptations to shame in our culture and it is so easy to bring it into the church. It is so easy for your love of what you do and where you serve to become twisted, to become a belief that you're serving the right way and everyone else is serving the wrong way. And very quickly we find this does something to our hearts. You see, if you believe that the way you respond to Jesus in the living room is the only right way to respond to Jesus in the living room, then you can look around at a room full of people and all you can see is what they're not doing like you. All you can see is that they're not doing what you're doing. You can look around at a room full of people who God loves and all you can do is like Martha, throw your hands up in frustration and say, Lord, can't you see? They're not helping. But that's not what Jesus sees. And it's not what he calls us to see either. When Jesus looks at Mary, he does not see hands that should be in the kitchen. He sees someone doing exactly what he designed them to do. He sees a student preparing to become a teacher. And today, church, when Jesus looks at the people who didn't come early or stay late at the event 
or the party or the ministry that we were sure was the most important thing, I think there's a good chance he sees the same thing he saw when he looked at Mary. He sees someone doing exactly what he designed them to do. He sees how he has uniquely gifted them. He sees the work he has prepared for them, and there's a good chance it's not the ministry we have decided is the front line of the gospel push. I think there's a way to serve and to celebrate our own opportunities for service without shaming where others sit. And I think it starts by looking at Mary and Martha's house. In all of human history, there is only a tiny handful of people who have gotten to have Jesus in their living rooms. And Martha is one of them. Martha gets to serve her God in the most tangible way. She gets to cook his dinner and wash his dish and offer the God of the universe seconds. Martha gets to serve her God with every gift she has been given exactly the way she has been designed to do. And here's the thing. Mary does too. In all of human history, there have only been a tiny fraction of people who got to have Jesus in their living rooms. And Mary is one of them. She gets to serve her God in the most tangible way. She gets to hear his words, to listen to his intonation, to mull over every phrase, to pepper him with every star student question on her heart. She gets to serve her God with every gift she has been given, exactly the way she has been designed to do. And I think this is what Jesus meant when he told Martha that Mary had chosen the better thing. We know he didn't mean that Martha's service was wrong. Jesus loves and honors and commands hospitality. But maybe he did mean that Martha's service would be wrong for Mary. Maybe he did mean that Mary was designed and gifted for something completely different for Martha. Mary has chosen the right choice set before her, the thing she was designed to do. There's no room for Martha to shame her for that. And again, Martha sounds so silly. How can you shame someone for choosing what they were made for? But, and, and maybe this is just me, but my heart hurts for Martha. I feel like I understand her. You know, Martha was around before Paul, so maybe she never got to hear the words I take for granted. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Maybe no one ever told her. Or maybe, like I do, she forgot that she can't work her way into receiving Jesus, right? Maybe she forgets that she's not doing this on her own. Maybe she forgets that this good work was prepared in advance for her. She forgot, like I so often do, that every chance we get to serve in this church and in our community and in our homes is a gift and an honor given to us by a God who chose to work, not just through his own power, but through meeting us and knowing us and using us. God chose to work 
through giving Martha gifts and real, meaningful, precious opportunities to use them. She forgets that it's a gift. And she forgets that it's a gift that's given to Mary, too. She forgets that when we are receiving the work prepared for us, there's no time for shame. It's time for celebration of her gifts and her opportunities, and of Mary's, too. And if you're here this morning, and you've forgotten, or maybe you haven't heard, let me be the one to tell you. He's given you gifts, too, real, meaningful, precious gifts. And he has set before you opportunities and communities where there is work that you and only you can do. And the people in the rows beside you, well, he's given them gifts and work too. And they are almost certainly completely and totally different from yours. When Jesus is in our living room, there's no time for shame. It's time to serve with our gifts and to celebrate the gifts of others. If you've been following along with our New Testament readings this year, then this week you read 1 Corinthians 12, and you saw this picture of how God gives this gift. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Friends, our service is a gift. And it's a gift that's been given not just to us, but to every single person in our church and in our city. Jesus tells us, this gift is going to look different in each person's hands. But it's the same gift. The passage goes on. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not nigh, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now, this passage sounds crazy. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. A body made of eyes? A body made of ears? You can't even imagine it. And even if you could force yourself to conjure up that terrifying image, you'd still see that a body made of eyes or ears or noses could do nothing. That's not how a body should be. But when we shame each other for serving differently, when we huff at each other for not doing what we are doing, when we demand that there is only one right way to respond to Jesus in the living room, Paul says, we're trying to make a body out of eyes. I mean, if you just think completely tangibly for a second about what it would actually take to host Jesus in an actual real-life, modern-day living room, 
you quickly find you need a lot of people. I mean, you need some Marthas. You need some people who are excellent at hospitality to cook the dinner and clear the table. But you need some Marys, too. You need some people to keep him company and to make sure we get every word he says. And you're going to need a lot more people than that. You're going to need some, some Joeys to go knock on every door in the neighborhood and say, Jesus is here, and get them to the party. You're going to need some, some Sarahs to run to the store and pick up everything you need. Man, this party is going to be big. So you're going to need some Henrys to clean out your garages and your back rooms and your yards and make sure there is room for everyone. You're going to need some Allisons to start your music and get your playlist going. And you're going to need some Johns to show people where to park and put their coats. You're going to need some Kathys to hang streamers and some Bins to pick out tablecloths. You're going to need a lot of people with different, unique, and essential gifts to host Jesus in your living room. When Jesus is in the living room, there's no time for shame. We've got to live out of our gifting and thank our God that he sent someone to do everything that we can't when Jesus is in the living room. There's no time for shame. It's time to serve with our gifts and to celebrate the gifts of others. Look, if you're here this morning, maybe you're Martha. Maybe you figured out a long time ago what work you were made to do, and you've been as faithful as possible ever since in doing it. That's awesome. But you got to be careful, because you can forget that it's Jesus in the living room, and it's not time to cast shame. It's time to serve with your gifts and to celebrate the gifts of others. Maybe you're Martha this morning, but maybe you're Mary. Maybe somebody told you that people like you don't have the same blessing of good work to do. Maybe somebody has made you feel ill-equipped or underprepared or unsure where you fit. Well, just like Mary, you've got Jesus in your living room too, and he has prepared a place for you. It may not look like somebody else's, but it is just as good and necessary and powerful. Jesus is in your living room, and there's no more time for shame. It's time to serve with your gifts and to celebrate the gifts of others. Colossians 3 puts it this way. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Church, Jesus is in our living room. Whatever we do in word or deed, we get to do it for him. He's worked what we do, what we're good at, and who we fundamentally are into his mission. There's no more time for shame. Jesus is in the living room, so it's time for celebration. The problem was never Martha cooking Jesus' meal. And the problem was never Mary studying Jesus' words. The problem was forgetting that it's Jesus in the living room with the honor and the invitation of good work that we get to both take up and share, celebrating our own work and celebrating the remarkably and wonderfully different work of our brothers and sisters because it takes a lot of people to host Jesus in all our people in our living rooms.
Jesus is in the living room, church, and it's not time for shame. It's time to serve with your gifts and celebrate the gifts of others. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for each and every person in this room for the way that you have designed and gifted them. Lord, I pray that you will give us the courage to serve with our gifts, and I pray that you will give us the joy to celebrate the gifts of others. Be with us, Lord, as we respond to you in our living room and make room to host all your people. It's in Christ's name that all this I pray. Amen.